0: And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve.
1: Well, as I said, today is known in the Christian church, at least traditionally, as Palm Sunday. A bit of research this week told me that uh, the church has been celebrating Palm Sunday in some fashion since the fourth century. And what we're doing is we're just commemorating, we're remembering the text we just read. The triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem uh, a week or so before he is crucified. Now it's pretty easy to get caught up with the details of Palm Sunday. Uh, We we get excited about palm branches, uh, the Mount of Olives, the donkey, you know, always a big hit. And, And those details are important but they're only as important as to what they tell or what they reveal about Jesus Christ. See, if we get overly excited about the palm branches or singing songs that contain Hosanna, we we just risk making those things the main event. But they were never intended to be the main event. The reason we have this text is not because we're just super into palm branches, but because Jesus is actually up to something significant. There's something going on with Christ here that we need to see, and palm branches and all this stuff are just kind of the sideshow. If you've ever been to a major sporting event, you know, Senators, Red Blacks, or, you know, in Toronto or whatever, if you go to a large arena, it's really easy to get caught up in the spectacle of what's happening. Like there are lights, and there's music, and there's a, a t-shirt cannon, and there, there's hot dogs, and overpriced parking, and you know, and, and all of that kind of contributes to the environment, it makes it feel fun, makes it uh, a, a great experience, but the real point of the day, at least for most of us, is what happens on the ice, or you know, what happens on the field? Did, did the home team get the black disc into the net, you know, more times than the other team, or did, did the team throw the bouncy ball through the hoop more or, or fewer or less times than... Then the other team, we, the point is, who won the game? And sometimes the spectacle, the lights, the show, makes us miss the point. You go home and you're like, "Ah, yeah, my highlight was the kiss cam, instead of, you know, what happened on the court that day or, or on the ice. Who won the game? What, what, what really happened? I think that's what's going on with Palm Sunday, and what sometimes goes on with Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We get excited about the incidental details, but we miss what the day is really about, And so with all that in mind, I want to show you today how the details have meaning in the identity and mission of Christ. I mean, I agree, there's something to the donkey, there's something to the palm branches, the shouts, the songs, the city of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, you know, et cetera, et cetera, but only because they teach us about Christ. And so I want to consider Jesus together this morning under three headings. First, the public Christ. Second, the poverty of Christ. And then third, the anti or anticlimactic Christ. <clears throat> I do need to say a thing about the, the Gospel of Mark before we kind of begin. Even though we haven't done Mark 1 through 10, I do need to say a couple of things about this. Most of the life of Jesus was not spent in Jerusalem, but outside of it. Most of the the miracles that we're going to read about in the Gospel of Mark happened in somewhat backwater places. A lot of teaching happened in places like Capernaum and Galilee, not that close to really the center of Jewish life at that time. The Gospel of Mark only records Jesus going to Jerusalem once, right here. Now we know from other Gospels he made another trip or two, at least once he was a man. You know, there's the, the boy in the temple and all those kinds of things. But all his trips so far were pretty quiet, pretty under the radar, in many ways, up until the triumphal entry, up until this event, Jesus was not a very public personality. And that seemed kind of purposeful. He kept telling people, don't spread the word about me. Don't, don't go tell who I am. He would, he would cast out at a demon, and the demon's like, I'm gonna tell everyone. He's like, he's like, don't do it. Or when he heals someone, he says, "You know, don't, don't make a big deal out of this. For years, he faithfully ministered, faithfully healed and taught and did all these things, but he was really biding his time. He was keeping to his own timeline. This would sort of be like a politician, you know, really lighting it up and causing a stir in Peterborough. And you're like, look, there's nothing wrong with Peterborough. It's a great place, probably cheaper housing, you know, whatever. But if you're going to accomplish something in politics in Canada, you either have to get to a provincial capital or have to, you know, make it here to Ottawa. But all this work in outlying territories that Jesus was doing, far from the center of power, far from the center of Jewish life, it comes to an end here with this purposeful public trip to Jerusalem. No more hiding, no more identity under wraps. Instead of a private Jesus, we now see a much more public Jesus. And we see this shift in a few ways. First, because of the timing of Jesus' arrival. Jesus comes to Jerusalem just in time for the Feast of Passover. Now, that, that detail is actually not in Mark 11. You discover it if you kind of kept reading. Passover, one of the major high holidays for the Jewish people. The trails, the roads to Jerusalem just would have been choked, you know, packed with travelers. Arriving in Jerusalem at a time like this meant visibility. A lot of people were going to notice now, if you come back on Good Friday or on Easter, we'll talk about, there, there are theological reasons that Christ came at Passover, but that's not immediately relevant to this point. Coming at Passover was a public display. Second reason we know this is because of all the prophetic references. Mark absolutely stuffs this account full of Old Testament prophetic references, and let me just give you a few kind of quick. First, he tells us that Jesus pauses on his journey towards Jerusalem when he gets to Bethany and Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, and you're like... Doesn't seem like a big deal. You know, Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem, small town. Bethphage, we don't even know exactly what it was. It was a hamlet, probably, often associated with Bethany. But Mark tells us these two small places are at the Mount of Olives. Jesus is pausing at the Mount of Olives. Now, why? Well, Zechariah the prophet foretold of a day in the future when he said God himself is going to come down and fight against all the evil on the earth. In that sense in in that prophecy contained in both Jews and Gentiles. So Zechariah 14, verse 4, it says this on that day his, that's the Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and split the mountains in two and create his own kingdom on the earth. And now here we are in Mark eleven, and Mark's like, hey look, Jesus pausing on the on the Mount of Olives. He's, he's ready, he's prepared to establish this new kingdom. The mountains aren't going to be physically split. They're going to be sort of spiritually split open so the kingdom of God can come to earth. The Lord is on the mountain. He's going to do battle against the forces of evil. Second, there's this whole episode with the donkey, right? The mount, while, while pausing at the Mount of Olives, he tells the disciples, go find this donkey on, this, on the street so he can ride it. But the riding of a donkey was associated with kingship in the Old Testament, See, originally, Israel didn't have any horses, and so the kings rode donkeys. And again, from Zechariah, Zechariah 9, there's a prophecy about the future Messiah, and he tells the people, you're going to recognize him because he's going to come to you riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus riding a young donkey, this colt, was a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy. He knows that people have read Zechariah or heard Zechariah. He is declaring himself to be the Messiah, But that isn't all there is to the donkey from from non-scriptural other jewish writings we know pilgrims coming to jerusalem for passover were instructed to walk riding was frowned upon see part of the passover they're remembering remember when we got out of egypt and the lord passed over us and he didn't deal out the judgment and and we mostly walked out of egypt therefore walking to the festival it's part of the the remembrance of it So, so if you picture a busy road packed with travelers all of them probably on foot and then one's on a donkey. Such a sight would have been highly unusual, even astonishing. Who would have the guts to defy tradition in such a way? And besides that, when you read the Gospels, Jesus walks everywhere. I mean, he rides a boat, but only, you know, well, I guess he walks on water once. But he, he mostly rides in boats when he goes on water. But he travels exclusively on foot. The only beast we ever see him riding is this donkey. The riding of a donkey. An inherently public, kingly, messianic act. And the third reason we understand that this is Jesus going public is because of the way he lets the people speak about him and shout about him. So he kind of goes down the Mount of Olives, it kind of goes down, and then it goes back up into the city, and the people are spreading their cloaks on the ground, or along with palm branches, they're making this impromptu red carpet. Jesus doesn't say anything, he doesn't tell them to stop, he accepts it. And the people begin to sing, and they begin to shout parts of Psalm 118. It appears it was a kind of responsive singing or, or shouting, where some are calling out, Hosanna, which means, save us. We'll talk about that later. Others responding with, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is the coming king, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. These kind of shouts, these aren't normal shouts. These are royal, even nationalistic, political slogans This is not really a worship service as much as a rally or or, or a protest. And Jesus doesn't tell them to stop. He accepts the praise. He accepts these shouts as good and right. And so this triumphal procession, a red carpet of cloaks and branches, accompanied by the royal shouts is a public declaration that Jesus is uh, the Messiah. It's a decisive public event so this is the pattern. If you read the Gospel of Mark, Jesus taught and discipled in Galilee. He spoke parables by the sea and along the roads. He did miracles in Capernaum and Naphtali. But now he publicly enters Jerusalem with a sort of a tidal wave of public enthusiasm and support. But the question is why? Why would he do that? And the short answer is because it was time to die. See, the time was full. That's sometimes the way that they write about it. Christ went public now because his concern, his main mission, was not to save his own life, but to give it as a ransom for many. And you cannot do that in private or in secret. But he would be hung, you know, in five days' time on a public cross, on a main road outside the city for all to see. Jesus was never going to be a private Messiah for his inner circle, he was going to be a public Messiah for all of everyone, including us. It was time to go public because it was time to die. And how different this is from the way our leaders normally act when they get power. How different it is from the way we normally act when we get power. What's our impulse when we get power, wealth? We want to exploit it, and we want to enjoy it. We want to sort of take what we can get and pat ourselves on the back and think, "Wow, we've really earned this." Or to create an inner circle that we reward with favors. That's not the way Jesus was. He was never going to be a private Messiah, protected and safe. He knew when he rode into Jerusalem, it would lead to his death. But he did it anyways. It was not a mistake. It was not a miscalculation. Like, ooh, I guess I've, you know, he knew this was the beginning of the end. That's the public Christ. Let's talk about the poverty of Christ. And I want to return to the donkey just a little bit more. So he's at the Mount of Olives. He sends the two disciples. I've always wanted to know which two. You know, who, who got to go and get the donkey? You know, we, we never find out. But they go into this village to find this colt. No one had ever ridden it. Now, why does that detail matter? Well, in the Old Testament, there was a special significance attached to animals that had never seen regular use. Such animals were normally set aside for sacrifices, so, an unridden colt seemed to have been designated, even accidentally, for a special spiritual purpose. And again, there's a tradition in Israel no one could ride the king's mount except the king. That's not a biblical law. You won't find it in Leviticus, but it's a tradition. But it again, it points to this, this unridden donkey having special usage for King Jesus. And if the disciples encountered someone who asked what they were doing, they were supposed to say, Jesus told them, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, it's unclear from the text if this is a password, you know, something that Jesus has prearranged in advance, or if he has divine knowledge, and he knows that you say this, and, and they'll accept it. The scriptures leave both options open. You can kind of believe whatever you please. But the disciples go, they find the cult, they're questioned, they offer the, the, the response, and they bring the cult to Jesus. Now, what I find interesting is Jesus told them to promise that they would bring the cult back. <laughs> we'll bring it back immediately, as soon as we're done using it. So this cult is not a sacrifice, it's just something borrowed for a day or two. And if you, and if you, and if you look, the, the saddle, there was not a proper saddle, they just kind of threw their, their coats, their cloaks on the back of it. The path he rode, not a real path, it was a makeshift red carpet. So on this borrowed donkey with a borrowed saddle on a makeshift road, we see something of the truth about the kind of king Jesus is. And indeed, this theme will run all the way through the Gospels. When Jesus taught in Galilee, he did so out of a borrowed boat. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he did so on a borrowed beast. And when Jesus was buried, he was placed into a borrowed tomb. When a new disciple comes up to Jesus and says, I'm excited, let's do this, I'm going to follow you, he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, like Jesus, has no place to lay his head. I only stay in borrowed homes. And I want you to appreciate, maybe again this morning, that in Jesus is an astounding union of power and weakness, riches and poverty, and really of God and man. See, when you read the Gospels, you become aware that this man can feed thousands with a few small lobes and a few fishes, and yet sometimes goes hungry. That the Jesus who could heal all diseases was sometimes weak and weary. That, uh, that Jesus could dispel demons with a word and yet was tempted. And that he could raise the dead even from a distance and yet submitted to death. And see, the Gospels present this, this sort of contradiction, this mystery. He confounds our expectations. He, he will not conform to what we demand him to be. The poverty of Christ to ride a borrowed donkey on his kingly trip into the city, it tells us who he is. He's a king, yes, but he's a king who does not own his own mount and who will be crowned with thorns and enthroned on a cross. and and sarcastically mocked as a king of fools, if if the publicity of the triumphal entry tells us of his power, then the poverty of the entry tells us of, of his humanity and weakness. You know, if we only saw Christ's divinity and power, we might have forgotten that he was a true man. Yet if we only had known his weakness and his poverty, we might have forgotten that he was God. But when we see both, the mystery, the grandeur is impressed on us once more. And why does this matter? It matters because of the truth of who Jesus was. In comparison to all others of history, there's never been anyone like him. We've had many great teachers, many great leaders, and no one is the same as him. All of our our greatest and best spiritual and religious leaders, they may have achieved extraordinary levels of morality or profound levels of wisdom, but none approach Christ. For in him, God and man come together And it matters, of course, in terms of what he came to do. As man, Jesus could sympathize with us and suffer with us. But as God, he could offer a perfect sacrifice to secure our salvation. And if either had been absent, we would have been left in our sin. But a king who rides a borrowed donkey, well, that's something we could use. It's the poverty of Christ. Now, part three, the anticlimactic Christ. So picture that day if you can few-mile journey up, the city, or up, up to the city of Jerusalem. Crowds, fanfare, singing, shouting, even a festive atmosphere. The prophetic writings are coming to pass. The long-awaited Messiah is taking his throne. The king is riding into Jerusalem. I bet the disciples were jubilant. Momentum is high. This is a decisive moment, is it not? Well, look at what Mark says next. Verse 11 Jesus enters Jerusalem, goes into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is, I, I said, Jesus here is a man after my own heart, but that's not exactly right. He's going to bed early. Wow, what a day we've had. You know, it's already late, time to turn in. But what a letdown, isn't it? Wasn't this supposed to be the day Malachi 3 is being fulfilled. The Lord is coming into his temple. The disciples are like, we did it, and then he walks back down the hill to Bethany. And if you read carefully, that's where the day started. Did did anything happen? Did anything get done? It's it's kind of bewildering. But it tells us something. See, what do the people want from Jesus? What were they shouting on the road? They were shouting "Hosanna," which means "save us." But what else did they shout? "Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David." Whose kingdom did they think Jesus was bringing? Or maybe a way to ask it is this: What did they really expect to be saved from? Well, I'll give you a clue. Jesus and the people did not agree <laughs> on, on what, what they wanted to be saved from, what they were going to be saved from. What we read in the Gospels, we know they had imperialistic expectations, they had nationalistic expectations, political hopes. That's what they wanted to be saved from, and that's not what Jesus was doing. See, the people, they need to be saved. They were right to shout, Hosanna. But you know what they needed to be saved from? I got three quick things. One, they needed to be saved from their fickle faith. It's clear, or it's not clear that the people who shout Hosanna on Palm Sunday will, uh, the same will shout for Jesus' death on Good Friday. Perhaps some were the same, Well, we don't know. But we do know that many lost heart in the days that followed. Many of the disciples were like, I don't want anything to do with with Jesus. They were there for the good days. They were there for triumphal entries. But when the world gets turned upside down, they they were fickle. They're like, don't we need to be saved from the Romans? They needed to be saved from themselves. They needed to be saved from their petty nationalism. Some of the people clearly think this, he's going to be the one, he's going to fulfill our political, our national ambitions. They think he is the one who's going to bring in the kingdom of our father David. That's an Israelite, it's a Jewish kingdom they're hoping for. Perhaps they believe if we get the right leader, he's going to bring back the glory days. That's not Jesus' plan. And in fact, weirdly, it's far smaller than what Jesus intended he was going to bring about a kingdom that would, that would encompass the whole world. And they're like, hey, could you do this little tiny kingdom over here? But the people needed saving from their petty nationalistic dreams. They want to be saved from, from, from the Roman powers, but they were in the grip of an evil power and didn't know it. And third, they needed to be saved from their expectations of glory. The disciples are riding high, Right? This is the moment. We're going to sit in power with Christ. I'll be at his right. I'll you be at his left. They didn't know that Christ came to die, not to rule. He came for the humiliation and sacrifice, not for glory. And, and look, we can tisk tisk these foolish disciples, these naive people. But try to be honest with yourself this morning. If I could ask you, if we could, if we could sit down after the service today and say, what do you think you need saving from? What's really at the top of your list? When you yell Hosanna in the privacy of your heart, what is it that you want escape from, to be saved from? Work? Parenting responsibilities? Oppressive laws? Annoying relatives? Your spouse? Yourself? See, what we see in Mark 11 is Jesus will be a savior, but it's actually unlikely he's going to save you in the way that you expect. Because normally Christ does not actually deliver us from the mundane things of life. You still go to work. You still parent your kids if you have them. You still have to set your alarm clock tomorrow morning. We want salvation from our political enemies or our life responsibilities or some other demand being made of us. But Jesus says, that's not what I'm going to save you from. I'm going to save you from hell and Satan and sin. See, the anticlimax of this story means you're probably going to be disappointed in Jesus because he's not going to save you in the way you want, but the way you need In Malachi 3, which I briefly cited earlier, Malachi prophesies, he said, the Lord will come suddenly into his temple. And we're like, great, this is it. And then Malachi follows it up and he says this, who can endure his coming? He's like a refiner's fire or fuller's soap. Now, refiner's fire, we talked about it actually a couple times in 1 Peter. It's just the fire that burns off impurities and precious metals Fuller soap, that was used to to cleanse and and, and to bleach and to clean wool fibers before they were, uh, you know, used in clothing. But it's this abrasive, this really harsh soap. So Malachi tells us, when the king comes into his temple, the kind of salvation he brings, guess what? It's not going to feel good. What it's going to do is it's going to surface in you all kinds of dirtiness and impurities that need to be cleaned out. See, the anticlimactic Christ who goes back down the hill to Bethany when we want him to, like, wreck some stuff or take the throne, well, guess what? He's got some work to do on each of us. Because if your life is like mine, I have asked for a hosanna from very different things than what Jesus actually offers. Jesus offers deliverance from Satan, hell, and sin, and I'm like, can I get a few moments of peace and quiet? (laughs) Or worse, all the things I want salvation from just show me that what I really want is a Savior who lets me be in charge. Jesus is a public Savior who died for me. And we go, great, thanks, can you just give me what I want? That's what our heart often says. See, this triumphal entry, it's old news to some of us. You've maybe heard it. 20, 30, 40, I don't know, 50 times before. You probably know the story better than I. So, what I'm offering you today is not fresh insights on the donkey or some palm branch tidbits. I'm offering you what is offered here, which is an unpredictable Savior. He wants to come into your life afresh today, not to save you from what you think you need to be saved from, but to vanquish your sin and to change your heart. That's not always gonna feel great in the moment. It's gonna feel like harsh soap, it's gonna feel like a flame but it's true salvation, and it's offered to you, and it's offered to me. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful that you have given this text to us to show us what Christ is like. Excuse me. Show us the kind of king he intends to be, the kind of salvation he intends to bring. Help us to see him clearly today. Open the eyes of our heart that we might perceive him rightly. Not as we want him to be, not even as we expect him to be, but as he truly is. Make it real to us once more. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.